0: Hey, good morning and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. Now, we are meeting in person and online every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Now, starting today, our in-person services are out in the field. We are outside enjoying the weather and God's creation. Uh, We have pop-up tents for shade. Um, We've got Uh, water for anybody that wants it, and just bring a lawn chair and hang out and uh, enjoy the teaching of the Word of God and the creation that God has surrounded us with. Um, Also, in two Sundays, the 25th, after church, we will be having a church picnic lunch together, and so I'd love to see everybody there. to connect, hang out. We're going to have water stuff for the kids uh, and any adults that want to do it as well, I suppose. Um, But we're just going to have a good time uh, getting together. Also, we are still taking uh, food donations for the Wichita Family Center. We took a big load down this last week, and uh, so we are always collecting those on Sunday morning, and if you aren't coming in person but you'd like to help uh, donate, you can reach out and message me and we can arrange a time uh, for you to bring some stuff by uh, for the the needy and those who are underserved in our community. Last week wasn't just 4th of July, but it was also uh, my family's four-year anniversary here at this church, and we weren't here. We were on vacation, and I wanted to say thank you, thank you. My family has uh, just loved being here the last four years. We're excited for the the next many years that God has us here in this community. Um, but thank you for letting us have the time off. We needed it. You know, it's been a long year and a half, and so uh, to take a vacation to go away, uh, see some family. It was my dad's 60th birthday. Um, but we also took some time, just uh, just the four of us, and, and did some fun things together. I got to eat an elk sausage, which was a first for me, uh, got sunburned, uh, went, went and saw some, uh, you know, just some friends and people we hadn't seen in, up in Seattle area for a while. So uh, I wanted to say thank you for that. We're also excited for our fifth year here at Faith on Hill, um, re-engaging with the community. I don't believe that our work in the community ever stopped, um, It just changed for about a year and a half, but as we start to re-engage with our community uh, and relaunch, relaunch our kids' church, uh, relaunch things that have been absent because of COVID, and as those restrictions have gone away, uh, we're we're moving forward safely and uh, doing all of the things that uh, we feel that Jesus is leading us to do. So couldn't be more excited. Uh, Finally— at the end you know we, we have our time of bible study if you have a bible open it to the book of first john chapter 4 but at the end we're going to respond through prayer and worship and i do want to let you know and invite you and if you need to pause this so you can go grab the stuff uh, but we are going to take communion together so uh, if you have juice and bread or juice and a cracker or or water and a uh, saltine cracker it doesn't matter the what matters is in our heart uh, so we'll be observing communion together at the end of our time. If you have a Bible, open to 1 John, and let's see what the Word of God has to say to us this morning. Well, this morning, as we continue our study through the book of 1 John, John continues a familiar theme, loving one another, uh, rejecting sin, the victory of Jesus. These are things that he has talked about before. So what I want to do this morning is go over these verses and and give some Bible study sort of comment, and then I have a short message to share at the end about the big idea. Because what I think happens is as people read the Bible, study the Bible, one of two things happens. They Often people, and myself included, we will focus in, if we're reading a chapter or half a chapter or uh, a few verses, but we'll focus in on like one thing, one idea, one word, one verse, and there could be 40 verses in a chapter and then all we do is focus on like one or two of them. By the way, this is actually what some people are telling preachers to do these days, you know, Don't, don't teach 10 verses, just teach one thought and that's it except that's not what God has given us. And there are big picture ideas. And then sometimes people will only focus on the big picture and they'll never focus on one or two verses. And and so there's this big thought, but then there's these really specific ideas that get overlooked. So we kind of want to do both. I think there's a value in both, by the way. Uh, you know, some people love doing these read through the Bible in a year. I think those are great to get a feel for things, to get a big picture idea. And then there are times where In my life, for two months, all I did was read one chapter, John chapter 3. Why? Because it's the most well-known verse in the Bible and one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, and I decided that I had just lost a sense of newness to it, and I wanted to read it and read it until new things began to come out. And then there have been times where, yeah, I've read the whole Bible in a year. Uh, In the last three years, I've read the whole Bible cover to cover. Uh, I didn't do it in one year. I did, in, I did it in uh, two, but I've, I've, uh, I've read the whole Bible cover to cover, and then there's a place for just getting into a few verses and, and settling in for a while, so we're going to do both. John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an anointing sacrifice for our it's not anointing atoning sacrifice an atoning sacrifice for our sins dear friends since god so loved us we ought to love one another no one has ever seen god but if we love one another god lives in us and his love is made complete in us this is how we know that we live in him and he in us he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world if anyone acknowledges that jesus is the son of god god lives in them and they in god and who and so we know and rely on the love of that god has for us god is love whoever lives in love lives in god and god in them This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence, confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And I'm reading out of the New International Version, but if you read translations like the New Living Translation, they will specify anyone who loves God must love their Christian brother and their Christian sister. This is God's Word. I wanted to make a few comments here. First, it says in John chapter uh, 4, verse 10, that... This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I want to point out that Jesus is our Savior because we needed saving. Jesus is my Savior because I needed saving. Jesus is your Savior because you needed saving. That's a good thing to remember. It's a good thing to remember. I needed to be saved. I was not a good person. I was not a moral person. I was not an upright person. I was a sinner who needed the grace of God. And especially if you grew up considering yourself to be a moral person. Sometimes we like to live in the fantasy of our own morality We like to live in the fantasy of our own morality. And we don't realize the depths from which Jesus has saved us. So the first thing I would note here is that we need to be saved. We needed to be saved. Then in verse 12, he says something interesting. He says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Didn't anyone who see Jesus, didn't they see God? Anyone who physically looked at Jesus, including John, the author of this book, didn't he see God? Yes, but that's not what God is saying. That's not what John is saying, excuse me. Um, In John, the Gospel of John, not the book of 1 John, but the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, John writes, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So what John is trying to say is, no one has seen God. Back in the uh, Hebrew scripture, you you might remember Moses. Moses, you know, is the guy who... Uh, said to Pharaoh, let my people go, and they crossed the Red Sea and brought the Ten Commandments down. Um, Moses wanted to see God, and God said, Moses, if if you saw me, you would die. But what I'll do is I will let my spirit pass by, and you hide in this little cave, and I'm going to cover it, and I'll pass by. And then afterwards, you will see the, what the Bible calls the afterglow of God's Spirit. And in some uh, church circles, they have these afterglow services where the idea is to just be aware of the presence of God. And, and Moses saw whatever the physical, tangible results were of the presence of God in some direct way passing by a place. But no one has ever seen God except for Jesus and that is what John is speaking of is the the humanity of Jesus that Jesus was the bridge between God and people that Jesus was the bridge between the perfection and the the holiness and the the immense awe and reverence that is that is surrounding and worthy of of God and all of the Rebellion and sin and selfishness and mess and dysfunction that has surrounded humanity. And Jesus is the bridge, the way to connect the two. So what John is saying isn't that, oh, you know, no one's ever seen God. because No, he's saying that Jesus is the, is the bridge between humanity and the divine. And that because Jesus, the Son, was obedient to the Father... Even though he was equally God with the Father, he lowered himself and became that bridge for our sakes. Then in verse 20, he says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates their brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. A connected theme, seeing somebody versus not seeing somebody. It's kind of an old sitcom trope, you know, the, the, the character in the sitcom who says, oh, I've got a girlfriend in Canada. No one's ever met them, and they're like, yeah, sure you do, right? But there's something about being in tangible community with somebody. And what John is saying is, it's easy to say you love God because you can't see him. Anybody can say, Oh, I love God. Yeah, oh, I love Jesus. I've had, when you're a pastor, I've had so many people say, Oh, I love God. You know, I'm good with God. But then there's no connection to their lives. And John's saying, Hey, you claim to love God, and yet your brother or sister, maybe literal, but more likely he's speaking of your spiritual family. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of of God through Jesus, and so, hey, oh, I love God. I can't stand those people over there. I can't stand that church. I can't stand that person. Wait, what? John's saying, if you say you love God, then that should be shown by loving his people. It's easy to say I love God. It's a lot harder to love the person next to me. Does that mean that if I don't go to church, I'm not a Christian? Does that mean that if there's somebody at church who um, is is not nice, is even a bully, that I shouldn't have boundaries? No, not at all. Don't hear what I'm not saying. There are churches that are not healthy. You hear about toxic communities. There are people who are not healthy. And so you should have reasonable boundaries. I, I've been pastoring in churches long enough to have seen a few things. And I remember, you know, I being in a conversation once where somebody was, was just being terribly sort of abusive verbally. And, and it was just like, hey, we're not going to do that here. We're going we're gonna to talk respectfully to each other. We don't have to agree, but we're going to talk respectfully. A person left the church. What what John is saying is that you can say that you love God, but if there isn't some reality to it, and this is a big theme that he has gone on again and again and again, if there isn't some reality to it, then what good is it? And you prove it by the outpouring of things. So, the, the final thing, and it's not really in my notes, but I did want to make a comment about verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I believe that there's somebody who might hear what I just said, and, and then thinks of this in terms of like, what do I have to do to not get in trouble? Do I have to go to church a certain amount of times? Uh, do I have to be a doormat for somebody? Do I have to... Um, do a certain amount of nice things, take a certain amount of meals to somebody after they've had a surgery or something, and that will show that I love people and that will get me in good with God? That's not what I'm saying. Religion is driven by fear. What we would think of as religious systems are often driven by fear. Do these things or else. Fear has to do with punishment. If you heard what I said and you're afraid that then you'll not be a good enough Christian or a good enough person... That's missing the point. All of this talk about love isn't about being good enough so I don't get punished. It's choosing to walk in the freedom and the liberty that we've been given so freely through Jesus. God has good plans for us. God has good plans for you. And these these. Things that come up in our daily lives. You know, we've got this big overall idea of faith, but then, you know, what happens when something happens in your family, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your church, and you don't like it. You don't like that person. You're against what they're doing. It's easy to say, oh, love God and love people, until people get involved. And that's when you find out whether the love of God is really ruling in our hearts or not. There are Christians who don't want anything to do with church. And I'll be the first to say, if you got hurt at a church, if you had a a toxic church experience, I'm sorry. I believe you. And, And if you need to just let somebody hear it. Even if it was this church, maybe I wasn't even here. You know, I talked earlier about last week being our four-year anniversary. But we were like, oh, decades ago, something happened at that church, at Faith on Hill. Well, I'm the guy here now, so I'm totally willing to hear from you. But, but to say I won't be part of God's people, that's like saying you want to be my friend, but you don't want to be friends with my wife or my kids. That's not going to work. And if I say I want to I want to love God, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with Jesus's people. It's not going to work. Now, there are these bigger picture ideas that John has been talking about. And we've been touching on them. Love the people of God. Flee from sin. Live in the light. These are big ideas and big themes. And it's, it's like John keeps, it's not like chapter one is live in the light. Chapter two, love people. Chapter three, this, he kind of weaves in and out. And you might have noticed that we keep coming back to the same ideas. I think there are three big ideas, three big lessons. And interestingly, another book that John wrote, the book of the Revelation, might give us some insight into these three lessons. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus, our Lord himself, gives John seven letters to send to seven real churches. So Jesus says, John, I want you to write this down. You are going to be my secretary, my scribe. I am going to give you a letter for each of these seven churches. And these churches are real, historical churches. And three Of the seven churches, I I think speak really directly to the big ideas of 1 John. How do we live as Christians? In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes to the church in the city of Ephesus. And this is the same Ephesus that the book of Ephesians was written to, the same Ephesus talked about multiple times in the book of Acts. It's a big church. It's a well-known church. It's an influential church. Uh, if you study church history, you find that for the first three, four hundred years of the church, the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus was incredibly important and influential. And Jesus speaks this to them. He says, hey guys, and I'm going to paraphrase, you can go and, and read on your own. It's your homework, Revelation 2 and 3. And I, by the way, I think the book of Revelation especially is great. The whole book is great. But the first three chapters, first four chapters are amazing. And many times Christians, because they're, they don't want to deal with the stuff that happens in chapter six onward with the symbols and the prophecy, and they go, oh, I don't want to deal with that. And they miss out of the epic, packed, full goodness of the first four or five chapters of the book of the Revelation. And in Revelation 2, Jesus says, John, I have this message to the church in the city of Ephesus. And he talks about how they've held on to truth and they haven't fallen for bad doctrine and they haven't gone to weird teachings and they've stood firm in the, in the gospel and the word of God. They haven't compromised any theology. But he says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. You know all the right things, but it's all in your head. It's not in your heart. You say all the right things, but it's because you know that's what you're supposed to say. It's not because it's what you want to say. And what Jesus is saying to, these three, to the church in Ephesus is that love is more important than truth. That being right about certain doctrine isn't as important as having your heart full of the love of God and love for people. And you can have everything down. You can have all the correct theology. You can have all the right understanding about the Bible, about Christian teaching, and not care, not care, not have your heart broken for your own sin and and for for the, the brokenness of the world around us. But isn't truth important? Someone might say, absolutely. Jesus writes to two other churches, a church in a city called Smyrna and the church in a city called Pergamum. And both of these churches had given themselves to bad teaching. Both of these churches had given themselves to immorality. Immorality was commonplace in the church. And Jesus says, get away from that. Walk in the freedom, reject this false teaching, reject this re-embracing of sin and come back to the freedom that I've brought you through my death and resurrection. You see, there's churches like Ephesus, Christians like Ephesus, who they have all the right answers, but no love. Jesus speaks to them first, get love in your heart. But then there are churches and Christians like Smyrna and Pergamum, and they might be the nicest people. They might be seeming, oh, they're so loving. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, they'll just accept you for who you are. You know, Jesus accepts people for who they are. And then what does he do? Jesus went and ate with the sinners. But then what did he do? Zacchaeus and Matthew, who were both tax collectors, that means they were cheats. They were thieves. They were traitors to their people. They were helping the oppressors. They were the worst of the worst. Both of them repented. Matthew became one of Jesus' closest followers. Zacchaeus stopped his, his sin, and then he actually took his wealth that he had acquired from all of his sin, and he used it to help the poor. The woman caught in adultery, everybody remembers that Jesus didn't condemn her, but also remember that he said, go and sin no more. The woman at the well who had five husbands and the one that she was living with, the sixth, wasn't even really her husband. They were just shacking up together. Jesus changed her life. That that sin was broken and she walked into freedom. Freedom. I read something really challenging a while back, and I think it's very true. There are certain communities, there are certain communities in uh, our, our neighborhood, in our world, that feel that Christians target their sins, that feel that Christians target their sins and ignore others. And I think it's true. I agree with them on that point. And, and so, there is a, a thought that says, why, why are you targeting the gay community when so many Christians going to church are engaged in heterosexual sin? I talked to one pastor recently who said, I can't think of a couple under, you know, under a certain age. You know, I'm not talking about people that are you know, older and getting remarried, but even them increasingly. He said, I can't think of a couple that I have married in the last five years who wasn't in sexual sin before marriage. Why would I target the gay community when we can't keep it in our pants? There, you, can, you can target substance abuse and you can look around and you say, it's, it's ridiculous how our world has just become so okay with substance abuse, with drug use, with alcoholism. And then the church says nothing about division and bitterness within. Churches are allowed to have people hate each other for years. Or churches are allowed. There are Christians who feel free to say things that are blatantly racist. We speak the freedom of God to those who are in the bondage of sin, who are in the bondages of drug and alcohol, who are in the bondages of sexual immorality. We speak the freedom of God. Come out of this. There is freedom from pornography. There is freedom from. Uh, there is freedom from substance abuse. Absolutely. But there's also freedom from racism. There's freedom from bitterness. There is freedom from gossip. There is freedom from lying. These things are all true, and we preach the gospel to all people. And so Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, you guys have all the truths, but you don't care about people. You don't love. You just know the right things to say. But then he says to Smyrna and Pergamum, you guys have all the freedom or sorry you guys you guys are all loving quote unquote but you're living in bondage and and what's more is you're not helping people get out of their bondage and then finally he writes to a church in a city called Laodicea this Laodicea church Jesus says you guys aren't hot or cold you know if you're hot you're 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 energized. You're engaged. Your faith is active. You're serving God. You're loving people. or You're cold. You're just hard to God, hard to people. You don't care. I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm just going to do whatever. Jesus would prefer you be that. But he says instead, you're, you're apathetic. You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You just don't care. The biggest threat... To Christian living. And this is the big idea that I think John has been getting at all through the book of First John, but specifically in the verses we read today. The biggest threat is apathy. The biggest threat is apathy if I just don't care. Let's say that I read a verse that talks about loving my brother and sister, and I just go, uh-huh, okay. And then I just continue on not loving them, not even examining whether have I been loving to people or not. If I hear about freedom from sin and I just go, okay, yeah, that, that's probably a good ideal. If I hear about love, knowing the truth, sure, but having love, and I go, that's nice, okay. And then I just walk off and I go about my day or my week or my life and nothing changes. That's apathy. Apathy is just that neutral, not caring. It's almost like being numb. That's the biggest threat. I'm not worried whether a church 100% agrees with our doctrine or theology the way that we understand the Bible. I'm worried, do they love people? I'm not worried if a a church... Um, holds to all the right beliefs in morality as much, because I, I know that every church is working towards uh, finding you know the perfection of God and the, the truth of God in, in their own lives. I'm worried about apathy. I'm worried about apathy. And what I mean by that is this. There are Christians who I know, who I interact with all the time, and, I, and, and we've had honest and frank conversations. I believe that in this area that God would call you to live differently and to live in freedom. And I believe that they aren't apathetic to God, they're just working out what it means to follow Jesus. And for some people that happens like right then, but for some people it takes a little time. I'm not worried about the person who is trying to follow Jesus and they've got all kinds of mess and baggage and stuff going on in their lives. I'm worried about the the person, more likely a churchgoer, who's apathetic, who just kind of sits there and, uh, uh, you know, whatever. The person who is firmly hostile towards God is somebody who God can break and bring to repentance. The person who is just kind of lukewarm, they're the hardest to reach. John is speaking to us, and he says, like I said at the beginning, verse 10, we needed a Savior. We need a Savior. And verse 12, Jesus is the bridge between God and people. Verse 20, though, it's easy to say, oh, I love God. Yeah, a lot of people say that. But are you living in that love? Are you living in the power of Jesus, of faith in Jesus? And and like I said, these three churches that... Jesus had John write to in the, in the book of the Revelation. They're pictures for us. We got to choose love. Truth is important, but truth without love doesn't do anything. We have to choose freedom. Being loving is important, but if in the name of being loving we just leave people in bondage, that helps no one. Apathy will destroy us. But here's the good news. Jesus can bring life to dead bodies. To dead things, to apathetic things, and wherever I have grown apathetic in my faith, wherever I have grown apathetic in my understanding, wherever I've grown apathetic in my action, I believe Jesus can get the you know the the paddles you know get the uh, get the heart paddles. Somebody somebody needs the boom fifty thousand volts and bring us to a place of fervent love and truth. We're gonna pray together in a minute. And I want us to pray together as we take communion in a prayer, rejoicing in the victory of Jesus and at the same time asking God to search us and to draw out where we need freedom, where we need love, where we need apathy removed. We're going to take communion together. And usually we use cracker and a juice. If you got a saltine cracker and a a grape juice in your fridge, that'd work just fine. If you have a tortilla and an orange juice, if you have water and a piece of bread, it doesn't matter. These are the symbols. The real thing is that our connection is with Jesus and with each other. Let's pray and take communion together. Well, as we have spent time in God's Word, God has been speaking to us. I I believe that the Holy Spirit moves in and through us and speaks to us from His Word, from the preaching and the proclaiming of His Word and His good news. And so we want to respond to what God has said to us. We also want to be obedient and observe what the Lord gave us, that on the night He was betrayed, He took Bread, And he passed it around. They were, of course, having that last supper, that famous meal where Jesus had a a meal with his disciples before um, he was betrayed. And he, he took a piece of bread. Now, I've got this little wafer, but it's actually not far off. The bread they would have had would have been a flat bread, no yeast, because they were observing the Passover meal. And yeast in the Bible is always a picture of sin. It doesn't take much, just a little bit, and it affects the whole dough. And in the same way, a little bit of sin, it doesn't take much to kill a person. And so Jesus took bread that had no sin, and he said, here, take, and he broke a piece off, and he passed it around, and they all broke pieces off, and he said, eat, this is my body broken for you, because Jesus had no sin. Jesus never once sinned. He never lied. He never was jealous in a sinful way. He never wanted something that wasn't his in a sinful way. There was no hate in him. And so we take his body and we remember him broken for us, beaten for us on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, thank you that you loved us when we hated you. You loved us when we hated you. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to save us and it was his body broken and bruised, whipped, spat upon. It was his body that was the worthy sacrifice to save us. Holy Father, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to empower and comfort us, your people, as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were obedient to the Father, even to death on the cross. You who had done nothing wrong died a sinner's death. You died the death of a guilty person because you took all of our guilt and put it on your shoulders. And we praise your victory over sin and death. And we claim new life in you through faith. And all of us who are in Christ live in that new life. And any hearing my voice who doesn't know if you're in Christ, you can claim that and pray that this morning. And God, the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill our lives today for the believer that you would empower us with the fullness of Jesus, for the non-believer that you would bring them to faith and salvation and forgiveness. Drive out any apathy in our hearts and replace it with the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And we trust that you are doing your work just as you have always done. And we believe these things in the name of Jesus whose blood was shed for our sins. And at the end of the meal, it wasn't at the same time, at the end of the meal, after they had taken the bread and eaten it, at the end of the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and he drank from it. And then he passed it around and he said, take and drink. This is my blood that is shed for you. And We usually do individual cups, both for practicality and for hygiene. But what Jesus was doing was saying, here, drink. Everybody's drinking out of the same cup. All of the same stuff is getting in everybody. But Jesus brings cleansing and healing. So let us drink together and remember that Jesus' blood has removed all sin. And any who are not in Christ, that offer for a full pardon, a full forgiveness is there. And all of us who are in Christ, we can live in peace and hope and victory because of Jesus' work. Let's remember together. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. You were worthy. When you died, your death was accepted. Your sacrifice paid the price, and you rose from the dead in victory. Lord, I can't wait to celebrate your victory with you in person when you return, but today, until then, I celebrate it here and now, and we rejoice that we serve the victorious Savior. And it's in your victory we pray. Amen. May God bless you this week. May he give you a new sense of his love for you. May you be seeking the Holy Spirit for a fresh work of power and victory in your life. God bless you. We'll see you next week.